Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 225. We'll continue in the book of Ezra with a brief summary of chapters 4 through 7 and follow with some thoughts about who's in and who's out. The returnees are settling into the land of Israel. In the previous episode, we heard about the setting of the foundation stone of the second temple, which was met with mixed reviews, celebration from the younger generation, tears of sadness from the older. All the while, there was an underlying hum of concern that the locals, the Samaritans, who were most likely mostly Jews that stayed behind two and a half generations previous, that they want to take part in the project, but the Babylonian returnees aren't having it. And this leads to chapter 4, beginning with the quote, foes of Judah and Benjamin agitating against the returnees within the halls of power in Shushan to stop the temple building project. Quote, To King Artaxerxes, your servants, men from beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from before you to us in Jerusalem, the rebellious and offending city they are rebuilding, and the walls they are finishing, and its foundations they are reinforcing. Now let it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, the levy, the tribute, and the land tax they will not pay, and in the end the kingdom will be harmed. Now, since we have tasted the salt of the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king's shame, for this we have sent out and made it known to the king that it be searched in the chronicles of your fathers, and you will find in the chronicles that this city is a rebellious city and is harmful to kings and provinces and has provoked war within it from days of yore. Therefore was this city destroyed. We informed the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished because of this, you will have no share in the region beyond the river. The king, of course, investigates and responds with a letter of his own, which is reproduced in the text, calling for the workers to shut it down, which prompts the original letter writers, Rahum and Shimshai, to head to Jerusalem with the official letter to stop the work, quote, by main force. And then the text tells us, quote, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem stopped and it remained stopped until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. Chapter 5 begins with the prophets Zechariah and Haggai spurring the people into action to restart the building of the temple. Hey Narnia, let's go! Let's fucking go! The community's leaders Zubavel ben Shaltiel and Yeshua ben Yotzadak answer the call. The renewed work does not go unnoticed. Quote, At that time, Tatnai, the satrap of beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates came down upon them, and thus did they say to them, Who gave you authorization to rebuild this house and to finish these walls? The Jews cite, among other reasons, Cyrus's proclamation that permitted them to return and build the temple. To this, the satrap has no ready reply, so the work is allowed to continue until a definitive answer comes from Shushan, from King Darius himself. In his letter to the king, which is reproduced in the text, he asks, quote, If it please the king, let it be searched in the archives of the king there in Babylonia, whether it be that King Cyrus put forth a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king's pleasure concerning this be sent to us. In chapter 6, we get the answer. After a search of the archive in Achmeta, the capital city of the Medes, they find a copy of the decree, and it is as Zerubbabel and the Jewish leadership said. And bonus, the construction will be paid for by the king. So the king instructs Tatnai to pay for the building from tax revenue and provide whatever supplies the Kohanim need for temple worship. 
The king also wants the temple worship to include a prayer for the king's welfare and warns that anyone who gets in the way of this will be executed and his home demolished. So let it be written. So let it be done. And so in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius, the temple work is completed and many near offerings are offered to mark the day. The temple is back, and the Jews, quote, joyously celebrated the festival of flatbread seven days, for Adonai had made them joyful, and had inclined the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the task of the house of God, the God of Israel. We are seven chapters in, and only now do we meet the man of the hour, Ezra, a Kohen, descended from Aaron himself, who is also, quote, a scribe deft in the teaching of Moshe that Adonai, God of Israel, had given. He arrives in Jerusalem in the seventh year of the reign of King Artaxerxes with a single goal, quote, to seek out the teaching of Adonai and to do and to teach in Israel statute and law. He also bears a letter from the king himself, also reproduced in the text, which authorizes him to come to the land of Israel in the company of whomever he chooses to bring monies from Babylonia for the upkeep and support of the temple. Ezra is also vested with royal authority. Quote, whatever Ezra the priest, scribe of the law of God of heavens, asks of you, you shall scrupulously perform. This includes financial and political support. He is also authorized to appoint judges to enact and enforce Jewish law in the land by force if necessary. Ezra is overwhelmed with thankfulness to God for making all of this happen. Quote, Blessed is Adonai, God of our fathers, who has put it in the heart of the king to glorify the house of Adonai that is in Jerusalem. And as for me, he granted me favor before the king and his counselors and the king's warrior nobles. And I summoned strength as the hand of Adonai my God was upon me. And I gathered chieftains from Israel to go up with me. The first two waves of returnees to Zion, although met with great fanfare, were lackluster in number and star power. The third wave, as we read in chapter 7, was led by Ezra himself. As we said earlier, he was a sofer, a scribe, and a redactor of the Torah. He was also a kohen, a priest from the renowned family of priests, whose lineage could be traced back to the first priest, Aharon's son, Pinchas. As the new head of the Jewish community in Yehuda, Ezra had surprisingly strong Persian backing. Nehemiah, in the eponymous book we'll be reading next, reports that Ezra had plenipotentiary powers, including the right to punish disobedient locals by expropriating their land. He had authorization to transfer all the monies donated by Babylonian Jews and government officials for reconstruction projects in Judah, including the temple. Ezra could extend tax-exempt status to the Kohanim, the Levites, and the Netinim for their service to the temple, as well as appoint magistrates and judges. And what is most important, he could appoint teachers to teach the law of God. Much of what popular Jewish tradition recounts about Ezra comes from the Babylonian Talmud. The rabbis of the Talmudic period, known as Amoraim, lavished praise on Ezra's stature as a scholar, opining that had he been born before Moshe, it would have been Ezra that brought the Torah to Israel. Nonetheless, they state that Ezra single-handedly re-established the Torah amongst the Jews in his time. One source even claims that Ezra was the prophet Malachi. Ezra is credited with establishing public forums for worship and chanting of Torah, the adoption of the Assyrian script for Hebrew letters, as well as universal education for children. In other words, in Ezra, we see a Judaism that we can begin to recognize. 
As revered as Ezra was, some Amoraim wondered why it took him so long to make Aliyah and return to Zion. Should he not have been one of the first to undertake such an important endeavor? One story states that Ezra did not depart out of respect for his teacher, Baruch ben Neriah. Baruch ben Neriah, a disciple of Yirmiyahu, was too old and frail to make the journey, so only after ben Neriah passed did Ezra undertake to leave. The second story prefigures the crisis of communal identity, Ezra's ideology, and his response. The Talmud relates that Ezra did not leave Babylonia until, quote, he had made them, the Jews of Babylon, like the purest sifted flour. In Ezra's mind, to ensure Jewish viability, one must remove all impurities from the community. But why Ezra was preoccupied with this in Babylonia is somewhat puzzling. Why would he have to sift through Babylonia's Jews, and specifically those who had no intention of returning? Though relations with non-Jews were generally amiable and friendly, Babylonian Jews lived insular lives. Furthermore, though an overwhelming majority opted to remain in Babylonia, traditional sources never cast any aspersions on the purity of their family lines, just the opposite. Even without the help of JewishGenealogy.com, the keeping of meticulous family histories was not only a popular hobby, but a guarantee that if the time came to return to the land of Israel, old family estates could be reclaimed. So according to this story, only when Ezra was confident that the community he would leave behind was of the purest Jewish lineage, did he pack his bags and return to Zion. For the remainers, Ezra's seal of approval would be a very nice addition to the framed family portraits. But what of those families whose lineage was considered dubious? What happened to them? Apparently, they were packed off to join Ezra in Judah, where, no pun intended, he would keep them in line. Of all the crises to face the Jews to this point in history, the threat of communal erosion was the most predictable and at the same time the most unavoidable. One could not expect a purity-preoccupied leader to simply accept the marriage practices of a community with lopsided demographics. After all, who were all those returning Jewish men supposed to marry each other? For Ezra, the sullying of family lines, or as we would say, intermarriage, was a crisis of biblical proportions, and as such, the response would need to be as epic and as radical. And although we only hear about this response in the next episode, specifically chapter 9, it bears discussing here, so spoiler alert. Imagine Ezra arriving in Jerusalem, and without even a moment to pour some water over his tired feet, he receives the following report from the city's officials. Quote, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Prezites, etc., etc., they were gone, long gone, from Judah's ethnic makeup. Joshua's armies supposedly annihilated them in the book of Joshua. However, the invocation of those ancient idolaters would resonate with a sofer. These tribes, according to the book of Deuteronomy, 
were the epitome of abomination, taking their daughters as wives, would profoundly defile the Jewish bloodline. Appalled by the, quote, faithlessness of the returned exiles, Ezra crumples into despondency. He rends his garments and tears hair from his head and beard. He, quote, sat desolate until the evening when he got up and set out a new agenda. The saving remnant must be purified from the uncleanliness of the land and its inhabitants. In other words, Ezra orders Jewish men to divorce their non-Jewish wives and send them away. Ezra does not need to employ a Torah-inspired rhetoric of defilement and necessary purification to justify this law. He could have simply issued the order without any religious justification. However, upon more careful consideration, one quickly discovers that Ezra's decree concerning foreigners diverges greatly from Jewish tradition, be it in the realm of actual Torah law or in formal practice. The Torah employs the word ger, or nochri, when regarding this state of estrangement and foreignness. In Genesis 23, Abraham first uses the term when looking to buy a burial plot, describes himself as a stranger ger and a sojourner toshav with you. Exodus chapter 2, twins ger and nochri, when explaining the meaning of Moshe's son Gershom's name. Quote, for Moshe said, I have been a stranger ger in a strange land, Eretz nochriah. Clearly, the experience of foreignness made a strong impression on Moshe. Every time he mentions his eldest son's name, he would inevitably remember his double estrangement. He would recall being a ger in Egypt and the bitter oppression and enslavement of his people. However, he would also recall being a ger in Midian and the kindness extended to him by Yitro and his family. As renowned scholar Nechama Leibovitch observed, how society treats the ger determines how moral that society is. You're as cold as ice! The Torah goes on to enjoin Jews to treat the ger with dignity. On 36 distinct occasions, the Torah reminds the Jews of their foreigner status in Egypt and how badly they were treated as the vulnerable other in Egyptian society. Then, the Torah quickly follows each reminder with yet another piece of social legislation. The Jewish experience in Egypt, beyond providing grist for Cecil B. DeMille, thus serves a higher purpose, framing a vision of a just society. At the heart of this just society, one finds the ger. This acknowledgement might have made some impressions on Ezra, but the defiling women he sought to distance were, in all likelihood, descendants of the Jews that never left Judah. They didn't qualify for Ger status. In his mind, they were anything but strangers. They, as Ezra stated, were the daughters of the people of the land, at worst abominable idolaters in the Canaanite style, though probably not, or at best, Jewish. Either way, their ambiguous lineage and most assuredly their dodgy, inclusivist practices threatened the pure family lines of the returnees. And though Ezra himself didn't come up with the idea, he agreed wholeheartedly that they had to be uprooted and cast out. He became the radically exclusivist policy's public face. Feeling down and dirty, feeling kind of mean. I've been from one to another extreme. Ezra's notion of a holy race or a holy seed whose boundaries needed urgent protection presents a spirited argument against intermarriage and potentially offends our contemporary sensibilities. Hey, 
However, it's somewhat sobering to recognize that Ezra's race-based notion of Jewishness was also at work in the crafting of modern Israel's law of return. This law, adopted by Israel's Knesset in 1950, sought to create a safe haven for Jews by entitling any Jew who desired to immigrate to automatic Israeli citizenship. In a time when Jews had nowhere to go, Israel would open their doors and their arms to any and all Jewish comers, which begs a daunting question, who exactly is entitled to invoke this right of return? In other words, who is a Jew? Surprisingly, the Knesset lawmakers did not look to Jewish law or Ezra to answer this question. For the purpose of the law, they looked to Nazi Germany. A 1970 amendment extended citizenship eligibility to anyone defined as a Jew by Hitler's Nuremberg race laws. The rationale was simple. Israel would provide safe haven to anyone who would have been persecuted by the Nazis for being Jewish, which would include the child or grandchild of a Jew, their spouse, the spouse of a child of a Jew, and the spouse of a grandchild of a Jew. The only exception to this very broad race-based notion of Jewishness and the haven by association extended to spouses is someone who, though defined as a Jew, willingly converts to another religion. Though Jewish law would regard the convert as Jewish regardless of any opting out, the law of return does not view that person as eligible for automatic Israeli citizenship. Ezra did not have halakha, Knesset law, or askmoses.com at his disposal when he issued his divorce edict to the weeping and consternation of the wider Jewish community. However, his decisive yet draconian act is blunted as, one chapter later, he vanishes from the Judean stage. Was he recalled to Persia to manage the edict's blowback? The Book of Ezra does not say, nor does it recount whether countless Jewish families were torn apart by the radical exclusivism of its religious leadership. Nonetheless, one would think that Ezra's lofty stature and the demonstrated tendency toward formal exclusivism would entrench a monolithic notion of Jewish patrimony and lineage. Yet as we know, there is very little that is monolithic about the Tanakh. Indeed, there is a trenchant counter-narrative to Ezra and the exclusivist vision of a holy race, one that takes this position apart in a meaningful and powerful and loving way. And we've already read it as part of Tanakhkest, and we read it each year at Shavuot. It's called the Book of Ruth, and it, as the kids say, slaps. If you like what we heard today, spread the word about Tanakhkest. Tell a friend about Tanakhkest over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Tanakhcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning find this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast at patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 226 when we conclude the book of Ezra with chapters 8 through 10.